Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Inked Up Runner. Uh, today, I am uh, going to be uh, joined by Wes Plate. Uh, Wes uh, actually uh, had a really big year, I guess you could say. Wes actually ran four 200 milers this year, including the Triple Crown of 200s, uh, that being Tahoe, Bigfoot, and Moab. Uh, Wes and I talk about what his training looks like, how each of those races kind of played out, uh, how he got into uh, running 200 milers and, uh, you know, kind of what's next for him. So everybody sit back and enjoy. All right. Thanks, Wes, for joining me. I appreciate it. He's 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 flexed around with me a little bit. We had a, a couple of things scheduled and I had work and then I wasn't feeling well. And so we finally we finally got here. So I uh, appreciate you. Meant to be. <laughs> so um, so, you know, I think in the intro, everybody kind of kind of heard, uh, you know, Wes is, you know, it's you. It, I've interviewed a lot of people. I don't think I've interviewed somebody at the scope of, of what he does. Um, you know, rarely can I use the word 200 mile specialist, uh, but we have one uh, in front of, in front of us talking to us today. So I guess before we get into the fact that you ran four 200 mile races in, in, in a year, let's get to the point of, you know, where did where did you start you know did you did you know did you jump into the ultra scene pretty quick or did you build up or what did that look like for you well there definitely was quite a bit of build up and i mean i i was a runner when i was young in high school i did cross country and track i was actually more of a sprinter i think naturally than i was a distance runner i hated cross country when i was in high school and at least I hated the running part of it. I loved the camaraderie part of it, but I was not a good distance runner. And then when I got into college, my my running output really diminished as my beer input increased. <laughs> um, and I, I just got out of shape and that kind of lost lost my fitness. It wasn't until several years later that I was at a job and a friend of mine had just recently got a Garmin GPS watch. And he was showing me how he would go for a little run and then it would upload his map to this website called Strava. And it was just the right kind of technology thing that like a sparkly thing that really grabbed my attention. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. I really like the idea of that. So I went and found myself a GPS watch and I joined Strava in early 2012. Um, but at the time I wasn't necessarily in great fit great physical shape i was i i had actually at that by that point i think i'd lost about 70 pounds from when i was at my heaviest um i had stopped drinking about four years before that so over the course of four years i had lost about 70 pounds and it made it a lot easier for me to reconsider getting back into running again so um just over that course of 2012, I would just go for easy, small runs. You know, I would like, my mom taught me when I was a little kid that way, the way she would run would 
when she start running would be to run from one telephone pole to the next and then walk to the next telephone pole and just alternate walking and running and then over time increase the number of telephone poles that she ran so i started to do that and over the course of just you know a year or two i got to the point where i could easily run a or not easily but i could run a 5k and so in 2014 uh i signed up for a couple 5ks and um that was that was fine i wasn't necessarily looking to do any more than that but in the summer of 2014 maybe september or something i accidentally ran seven miles i had meant to run five miles i was visiting a town i wasn't familiar with and i took a wrong turn and ended up going seven and so a good friend of mine said hey if you can run seven miles you can run a half marathon I want to run this half marathon in November of 2014. Would you run it with me? And so that invitation got me into training for my first half marathon. And uh, I think that really changed everything because I really didn't know anything about what I was doing. I think I followed a Hal Higdon half marathon training course, but beyond that, I didn't know about fueling. I didn't know about anything. So I, I did not eat breakfast the morning of the half marathon. I didn't fuel, of course, during the race in any way. And uh, around mile, whatever, 11 or 12, I just completely ran out of all energy. And the, the to finish that race felt like it took everything within me. It hurt and it sucked. Uh, but at the same time, when I crossed the finish line, it was like the biggest feeling of elation that I think I'd perhaps ever felt <laughs> at that time. I felt so good. And I think that caused me like to sort of chase after that. but. The um, I think the next the next step in the journey was that once I was fit enough to run a half marathon, that motivated me to join a local workout group. The, at the time, boot camps were all the rage, and so I went and joined my local boot camp. And there, I met some people who were also runners. So a guy who's still one of my great friends today, Tony, he had run a, a couple hundred miles at, up to that point, and so I was just sort of like wow 100 miles so we started to run together and uh i started to read uh magazine articles about ultras um there was there felt it felt like at that time a number of things happened that that felt like the universe was telling me to do something because i started to meet these people who for them ultras were normal i went on a I took a, a plane trip to, I had to go to LA for a thing. And normally my rule on an airplane is I don't talk to my neighbor. I just don't. But this day I did talk to my neighbor. I don't know why, but for some reason I started talking to him and we started talking about running. And he suggested that I read this book called Born to Run. So now I'm just like everybody else out there who, who got inspired by Born to Run. Um, but is there, oh, another thing about the, uh, the, I think Born to Run also talked about the, the 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 tribes in Mexico who would chase down antelope. I think that was part of Born to Run, and there was a, one of my favorite episodes of This American Life podcast. Also, was about chasing down antelope. So there was this intersection there that I felt like this thing that I had heard. Now I'm reading about it. Yeah, the universe was definitely saying you need to do this. So um, in October of 2015 i signed up for or i signed up earlier but i ran my first 50k in october of 2015 with people who i had met at the boot camp so todd my friend ran it mike 
ran it. Tina ran it. We all ran this as our first 50K. And um, that was sort of, you know, the beginning of my ultra adventure. And similarly to how I didn't understand fueling when I did my first half marathon, I didn't understand hydration for my first ultra. Uh, this particular race was an out and back. So about 15 miles out, there was this aid station with a bunch of volunteers. And I had been drinking all kinds of water, but I had not taken in any kind of salt. So when I got to the aid station, my legs started to cramp up. And the, aid, the volunteers asked me, you know, how are you doing on salt? And I was like, what are you talking about? They gave me uh, like a little Ziploc bag of um, electrolyte pills, basically. And so for the next half of the race, I was popping those things, trying to get ahead. Uh, but it was a pretty painful second half of the race. But I finished it. And again, had this like great feeling of, oh my God, I accomplished one of the most difficult things. I am now an ultra marathon runner. Um, and, I, and I think at that point, again, I was thinking there probably isn't anything beyond this. I've done the thing that I set out to do, but um, the story of just about every ultra marathon runner is pretty quickly, you start thinking about, oh, well, what if I went a little bit further? And I think part of that was that my friend Tina, who ran that 50K, she, she was really ambitious because I think it was the either the next weekend or two weekends later. It was very shortly after that. After running her first DK, she ran her first 100K. And so she asked me to be one of her pacers. And so I ended up pacing her through the night, a really dramatic night that was stormy and rainy and river crossings were completely treacherous. And at that event, I ended up with her, I was pacing her. And because I was so lucid, um, there were a couple other runners who joined us. And so I became sort of their leader as well. And those other two runners were running a different distance. They were running 120 miles. And the, the amount of exhaustion and pain that I could see on their faces uh, was interesting to me. I'm like, oh my God, I wanna, I wanna feel what they're feeling. They're feeling something special. And so, you know, you think about things that happen, like if I hadn't have paced her at that run, I wouldn't have met um, them, the 120 mile runners, you know, I mean, it would have changed my trajectory. So something about it was just what I needed. And it really inspired me to wanna to go after harder things. Um, so that was November of 2015 and Oh, I know what happened after that. Oh, right. Oh, this is, here's a cautionary tale. So November 2015, I'm like, great. I did my first 50K. I'm feeling really great. I talked to another friend who was involved in the ultra world. And he said, hey, Wes, why don't you run 100 miles with me this, this next spring in March? I'm all for it. You know, the universe wants me to do this. So I, uh, I didn't know what to do, though. I thought I should probably hire a coach. So I talked to a friend who had run hundreds and she recommended her a guy that she had used as a coach. And I started talking to him and he started giving me running workouts, but he was giving me seven days a week running workouts. And the friend of mine who had ran that boot camp, she, she, the trainer, she's kept telling me, Wes, you need to take some days off. You need to rest. And I was like, I don't have time to rest. I gotta, I gotta get ready for this hundred miler. Uh, and then in, January 1st, I think it was of 2016, I ran a just a casual 50k 
with a running group, they have this like annual running thing where some people run 50K, some people run half marathons. I ran a 50K on a paved uh, rails to trail um, thing. So it was pretty flat-ish mm-hmm. course, but it was all paved. And I ran it in these very minimal trail shoes. So uh, I needed to learn about equipment because I ran in the wrong equipment. And I ended up really, really damaging my uh, my left ankle. My um, my subtalar joint got really damaged. So I ended up ended up getting an X-rayed and saw a podiatrist and a sports therapist. And it took it took me out of running for about six months. What um, was the shoe, by the way? What was the what? What was the shoe? What was the minimal trail shoe? I was running in a. It was in a Brooks trail shoe. I think it was called the. Oh, no. What was it called? Wasn't Something Cascade. grit? It wasn't, it wasn't the Cascade. The Cascadia is not, a, it, it's not minimal, though, I don't think. It wasn't the Cascadia. No, I ended up running in the Cascadia later. That was a much more substantial shoe that had some cushion. This was, a, I think it was called the Pure Grit, I think is what it was called. It was pretty minimal. I kind of liked the way it felt, and it was really lightweight, but it was the wrong choice to be running on asphalt for 50K. Uh Anyway, so that took that particular thing took me out. I got injured trying to go too hard, not resting, using the wrong equipment. Uh, and so it wasn't until 2017 that, or I guess later in 2016, I think I was getting back into running again. But in 2017, I started as when I ran my first 50K. I'm sorry, 50 miler. So 50 miles in 2017. And I, for that, I hired a coach. So I, the other guy that I hired was kind of a coach, but I think that this this time I hired a real coach, and I actually still work with her. Her name is Corinne Malcolm. She's yep, a tremendous heard athlete. Her. Yes, yes, yes. I've heard of Corinne. Yeah, yeah, she's really great. So she helped me with my running my first fifty miler, and uh, that was that went really well. It was really hard. I mean, I I think people probably underestimate how hard a fifty miler is. If you run a fifty k. Uh, the distance between the difference between that and 50 miles is significant. Those last 20 miles are, are a lot. Um, so 50 miles. And then a year later, I went and did my first 100 miler, the Mountain Lakes 100 in September of 2018. And I think by this point, I had been reading articles and hearing stories on podcasts from other runners who a lot of them talked about in a 100 miler, they would I hit a hit the pain cave or go through some sort of thing that was so hard that they would push through it and they would come through the other side different uh in some way and that i started to feel like that was the thing that i was really after i really wanted to have the spiritual experience that i was hearing about other ultra runners having uh but i finished that 100 miler it was difficult i remember the last you know the last several hours i was barely moving i was walking uh, i wanted to run but i couldn't it was really challenging but at the same time kind of paradoxically uh, i got to the finish line and i was a little bit disappointed that it was over i did not hear angels saying i didn't feel this emotional catharsis that i was after uh, and so i started to think well maybe i need to go harder or longer um I really liked it when the sun came up that morning. It was kind of a nice feeling of energy and like, oh, this is great. But part of me thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could go again and see another sunrise? <laughs> so I think by that point, I had already become aware that 200 milers were a thing. I was following people on Instagram like Ben Light, who 
who had done uh, 200s at that point. I was really inspired by it. And so because I didn't have the this emotional breakthrough, didn't have the pain cave thing that I was hoping I was going to feel, um, the beginning of 2019 in January, I signed up for the Moab 240, which then I ran in October of 2019. So just about every year, uh, was saved for the 2016 when I was injured, I was kind of doing one major step each year. So 50K and 15, 50 mile and 17, 100 mile and 18, and then 200 miles and 19. And um, boy, I, I, I really fell in love with the 200 mile distance. And we had done a lot of my trip, my coach and I had worked really hard to get me ready for it. I felt like I was pretty ready for Moab when I started. We had done some really great training runs, including I'd done a two day, 75 mile solo training run on the Pacific Crest Trail up here in Washington. And so that got me ready for, you know, just being completely alone in the middle of nowhere for hours on end. Even I practiced sleeping on the trail during that run. Um, I did a, a hundred, I don't know, I did 100K the previous year. I, I'd done, I did a bunch of other races just as training runs. And so it was just, I, I felt very prepared at least as much as I could be for that race. And I, when it was over, I felt so happy that I kind of had found something that I really enjoyed. Um, and I think what really, there's a couple of things that really meant a lot to me, but seeing the sun come up five different times during the race was, it was amazing but also the camaraderie that I felt from the other runners was the thing that really, really uh, connected to my my spirit. Because I think in just about any race that I run, I will usually meet somebody and talk to them. And that's fun. You get to know people. And of course, generally, we're all like-minded, right? We're all trail runners. We were out there doing the same thing. We're right. out there and we're out there to support each other. But it's different in a, in a 200 because you're about out there for about four or five days, depending on your pace. And so throughout that time, you're probably going to see another, you might see that same other runner, I don't know, five or six times, like see them on the first day. Hey, how you doing? Okay, great. Let's let's go. See them on the second day. How did you sleep last night? Uh, See them on the third day, even on the fourth day. Hey, how you doing? Yesterday you were doing well. Today you look like you're doing better. So you get to have this much deeper interaction with people. And I fell in love with that. Um, and then at the end of it, when it was all over, I think I came away with the emotional thing that I had been seeking for the last few years before that, but it wasn't, it wasn't a shocking thing. It wasn't like, uh, the heavens opening up and all of a sudden I was gifted some knowledge, but rather I, it kind of unfolded slowly. I started to realize, oh, you know what? I think with the thing that I'm going to take away from this is that really there is no limit to what we're capable of that as long as we're able to stay healthy and stay uninjured you know through good training and or a good hydration and good fueling like there is no limit what we're, our bodies are capable of so much because when i did moab i ended up getting injured at around mile 120 there was this really steep steep climb um, and somewhere in that steep climb, I hurt my uh, my hamstring pretty bad. And so when I left the next aid station, I couldn't run. If I tried to run, it just hurt way too bad. But I found that I could hike and I could actually hike pretty fast. So 
I did the second half of Moab completely slow, well, slower than I intended to because I was hiking the entire thing because I couldn't run. So I discovered that not only could I just keep moving, but I could keep moving while injured. And the injury slowly got a little bit better um, to where by the, by the very end of the race, I was running a little bit. So I was able to actually heal. Um, it was just, it was remarkable to see that what I was able to accomplish and what we were all able to accomplish that year. And, and that's how I ended up falling in love with the 200 mile distance. Wow, uh, that's, and that's how that, I got there. That's amazing. It's funny, you know, you mentioned the injury and, and before, before we get into the, to, to unpacking all that, um, it's funny because I've never ran, I never read Born to Run. I'm like one of the few ultra runners that have never read that book. So when people <laughs> be talk careful about if you read it, you might want to run an ultra. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it's funny is I, I just got talked into it by some friends um, who said, you've already ran a marathon. You can do five more miles. And so that was basically how I got talked into a 50 K, oh, okay. you know, yeah, I didn't, yeah. it was, there was no book. I didn't, I didn't read any books, uh, but, but it, it's funny because so many people read that book and it inspires them to, to, to get out and do that. Yep. Um, but, um, but it's interesting how you talk about the injury thing, because I have a, a friend of mine who um, who got some some pretty severe tendonitis going into uh, a few weeks going into a hundred mile race, and um, we went to the hundred mile race. I was crewing him, and he got there, and the tendonitis never even played a role in his race whatsoever. Um, it's like, you know, he said it kind of jumped out at sixty, but not enough to really slow him down. Um, you know, uh, I think unfortunately for him, he ended up having some, he ended up taking in too many electrolytes and, uh, got so sick that it slowed him down and he missed, he missed the time at 75. Um, but it's, it's just ironic though, when you talk about physical injuries, right? Like you were, you know, the, the tendonitis when my, my friend Garrett had, how you're able to push through stuff like that. And it doesn't even, it becomes a non-issue and you're able just right. to keep going, yeah. Um, but, you know, unpacking the 200 mile distance. So, you know, you did, you did four of them in a year. And I think what amazes me is the first one you did, Cocodona, I think that's right. That's you, right. You did Cocodona, what, in May, and then a month and some change later, you did, you did Tahoe. So, I guess when you when you talk about that 200 mile distance, you know, for those of us who don't run that distance, talk about what a typical training block looks like for preparation for that. Because I imagine once you get to the first one and you do it, then a lot of it is this self-preservation to get to the next one. So getting to that first one, what does that look like? Yeah, the... Uh... So thinking back to the spring, my my training is, I think, pretty typical in terms of, you know, it's like a three week slow build. Each week is a little bit bigger. And then the fourth week will step back down to a little bit slower or uh, shorter distances. Um, I spend a lot of time just on my feet. Uh, I'm not necessarily running hard in, a, in my training. Um, there was some intervals I would do on a Wednesday morning in the springtime, so a little bit of speed work, um, but mostly just 
medium intensity endurance running, um, especially like a long day on Saturday, followed by a long day, a shorter, but also long day on Sunday. That back to back weekend thing is super important to train my body to keep moving, even though it's tired. Um, but the miles uh, weren't necessarily huge. Like I might do 30, 40, 50 miles and then drop back down to 40 miles. If I did have a big week, like a 70 or 80 mile week, those are pretty extraordinary. And that probably meant that I used a race as a training event. So uh, I did, I used two different 100Ks and a 50K as training runs. Um, and so those, those weeks ended up being longer. And, and then of course there was always, you know, even after one of those events, there would still be, there wouldn't be a lot of recovery afterwards. It'd be, you know, let's keep moving, keep the body used to moving even after it's exhausted and tired. Um, so then, yeah, but then once after the race, then it was, I spent, I think after every single 200 this year, the first week I did practically nothing. Um, I just rested, maybe even laid down with my feet up. A couple of times I did that, uh, Epsom salt baths, that sort of thing, but no running at all. Usually after about a week, I would start to get moving again. And then uh, the next few weeks, or depending on how many weeks between that and the next 200, it was mostly just maintaining fitness, you know, a couple of hours, maybe, uh, maybe four hours at the most on a Saturday. Not, I mean, those are obviously for those are a four hour run on a Saturday is a pretty big day for most people. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it didn't necessarily feel big to me because, you know, once I get back into the 200 event, you know, you're out there for again for just four days. Um, yeah, so for the most part, I think it was just kind of keeping things, keeping me fit. I did do in between uh, Bigfoot and Moab in September about halfway between those two events, I did end up running a 50 mile run. Um, that was for my birthday. And so I ended up, it was actually supposed to be 49 miles, but it ended up being 51. But yeah, but that was also, but there was just, my coach agreed that that was a good long distance to tackle halfway between uh, because it was a, you know, 14 hour day. And so it was, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily trying to build any kind of new fitness or trying to have any, see any new ad adaptations in the body, but rather, yeah, just kind of keeping things moving. So what's, so what's a peak week look like for something like, you know, I know a lot of folks when you're when you're training for a hundred, uh, the uh, you know the standard peak week for a lot of people is around a seventy-ish mile week, right? Um, at least that was you know what that was my peak week, and a couple of friends was around the same seventy to eighty. It, it you you know based off of what you're saying though it doesn't look like volume is something that is a real big factor is is that what i'm hearing yeah i i would agree i volume is not a huge factor for me training towards um a 200 i mean i'm just looking right now at my strava training log and in going into march uh so you know kokodona was the first 200 in may and in March, I had, let's see, a 50-mile week, a 56-mile week, then followed by a 26-mile week, 
And then I had a 77 mile week, but that was because there was a 50 miler that I ran. Uh, actually, you know what? This is the this is the wrong Strava. You're showing me the wrong year. Uh, March of this year. Okay, so I got an 80 mile week, but that was because I had a very long special trail run, a 50 mile trail run. Then I had a 45 mile week, a 32 mile week, and then there was an a 73 mile week, but that was because there was a hundred k involved. Uh, and then the week after that, I had a 44 mile week, which included a 50k. So in two weeks back to back, I did a 100k and a 50k. And that second week, the 50k accounted for most of the miles. Um, and then the week after that, a 48 mile week, and then a 30 mile week. And then that led led me to a week of mostly not running very much at all before Cocodona. So my peak running, I ran 73 miles at the at the most and um i think for me i guess the way i interpret it is that the training and the fitness is a part of it but in the case of a 200 i think a 200 is more mental more of a mental challenge than other distances are a mental challenge i think any ultra is a mental challenge at some point your body's like hell no Right. But you just you just keep on going. Right. I think in a 200, it's a bit more because in the 200, um, well, the 200 is also it's a different beast um, intensity wise. I mean, like you think about a 50K, there's a lot of people who run a 50K and they'll, they're going to run it pretty hard and pretty fast. Um, and then as you go to longer distances, you're going to be running slower. So you're going to run a 100 miler at a lower intensity than you're going to run a 50K. And you run a 200 mile at 200 mile at an even lower intensity than you would a hundred. And so um, that's why a lot of 200 milers will spend time focusing their training on hiking. So a lot of times when I go for a run, you know, I'm intentionally not running up any uphills. I'm definitely going to be hiking them. I might even go for a hike as a part of my workout mm -hmm. to train the hiking muscles um, because, you know, you end up spending in a 200 a lot more time hiking um, than you would in a 100. I think, was it in, um, I wasn't in Born to Run, but I read some other book that had said, maybe it was Hal, uh, Hal Kerner's book. Anyway, somebody had said in a book that you might spend 20% of a hundred miler hiking. So that's 20 miles, which like, if you're gonna, you, you should probably train specifically for those 20 miles. Cause that's a, that's a significant part of the run. And I think it's definitely more like 50% or even 60% of a 200 miler is going to be spent hiking. Um, and I think because of the intensity being lower, I think it's just once you get to a place of physical fitness, being able to go, you know, for several hours, at that point, it's just a matter of training your mind to keep on going and, you know, get to the next aid station, get to the next aid station, get to the next aid station. And I think that that's so a lot of the, a lot of the training I do. I feel like tries to help serve that mental aspect of it. Um, I did a training run where I I ended up spending several hours bushwhacking through uh, some really overgrown stuff. Um, it was kind of an adventure day. I knew it was going to be hard, but what ended up being extremely valuable about that particular training run was that it I was in a place where I was, I wasn't having fun anymore. I had been out there bushwhacking for far too long. I had way too much bushwhacking still ahead of me. I wanted it to be over. I was sick of it, but 
as I stood there in the middle of these this forest in the middle of nowhere, there's no humans anywhere near me. I remember thinking, okay, well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I might want to stop right now, but I can't. Like, I don't have any choice but to keep going. And uh, that sort of mentality comes really important in uh, 200 because we end up having some pretty significant distances between aid stations. Uh, at Moab, for example, this last one, we had an aid station, a distance between aid stations of about 26 miles. Now there was a water stop four and a half miles in, but that left us with 22 miles of between that water stop and the next aid station in, an, in a very exposed part of the course. It was a hot day. And I remember thinking at one point during that, like, this is terrible. I'm not having fun anymore, but I can't just stop here in the middle of nowhere. They're not going to come get me. I either have to turn around and go back you know, 10 miles or go forward 10 miles. But no matter what, I got to go to an aid station before I can even think about stopping. When I wasn't, not that I was thinking about stopping, but I think what was important for me was to have that mental, the mental toughness to be like, yes, this sucks, but I, but I can even entertain the idea of stopping right now because I at least got to get to the next place to sit down. So the mental part is a huge ask, a huge part of, the training and of course a huge part of the the events themselves yeah it, it's funny when you mentioned that about being stuck and not being able to, <laughs> you have no choice my buddy who who ran who attempted this 100 he he ran it last year and he finished it and uh, so he was running it this year and they go a different direction but what's interesting about this race the way the race directors have it out is if you make it past mile 86 there's two more aid stations after it, but they're very remote. Meaning, and it even tell you in the racing handbook that if you get to mile 90 and 96, they're really not going to, the, the cutoff times are soft there, meaning they're not going to pull you unless you just absolutely can't go. Mm. Meaning that, meaning that it kind of pushes you from a mental standpoint, if you get to these, these spots of, Hey, they're not going to pull me out of this race unless I am medically not able to function. And I have to kind of, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a, a, a the kind of what's a, it's a push, right. To keep going. Right. And I think that's, I think that's really great for the race directors to do that because for one, you know, I, I guess their thought process is hell you've made it this far you don't need to give up here. We're going to force you to keep moving, even if it's at a snail's pace, even if you finish past the 33-hour cutoff point for the race, we're still going to give you a buckle because you made it past this point and you persevered this long. And I think that that's a cool thing. I know some people would frown on you know that, but you know the cutoff part. But I think it's cool because I think you hit on something important that getting to this spot and realizing that you have no choice and that you, you know, you just really need to push on because most of the time you find that once you push on and get to the next point, you're fine and you can just keep going. That's right. Yeah. So I guess, you know, going from Moab, uh, your first time running Moab in the Cocodona, what sort of lessons did you learn from that going into Cocodona? Okay, so there had been about a year and a half that had transpired between the two. And of course, 
the the COVID lockdown year of 2020 was in the middle of that. Um, so I think, so what was some of the stuff I, I mean, I, I learned that it was possible to do. I mean, I think that was probably a, a key takeaway for me. It was like, wow, I can do this. Um, I, I went into Cocodona with the eyes wide open that it was going to be a really tough race. And so I, I like to do a lot of prep and research uh, as much as I can. Of course, problem with Cocodona the first year in 2021 um, was that there wasn't it had never been done before so I, I couldn't research youtube videos for like what did other people experience when they did it um but i was really involved in the facebook group in terms of like people talking about what they were how they were preparing for it i had learned from moab about you know my my pack capabilities and how much water i need for different segments um i had learned about my little i had done some over hydration at moab so I was going to try to to do less electrolytes, you know, at Cocodona, but Cocodona the first year, um, I I ended up doing pretty well because it was a hot hot year, and there was some really long segments between stations without water, and so I learned to carry a lot of water uh, with me, or I, I I knew ahead of time that I needed to carry a lot of water. I carried six liters of water between two different aid stations where there was this very long section of hot. Uh, exposure and that saved me and there, that was a section where a lot of other people ended up having problems and they dnf'd um, but the um yeah i just think that i think my biggest learning from that first time doing moab was that i was capable of it and so that was huge for me because that gave me the confidence to go to cocodona and you know feel like a confidence like oh yeah i think i can finish this i think this is going to be doable i think that's a bit for me, I, that's more helpful, I guess, than going into a race like, oh, I hope I can do it. Right, <laughs> I don't know. I, absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't think I necessarily go in with the expectation that I'm going to finish. I mean, maybe there's, I think I slightly expect that I'm going to finish. But I also know that things could go wrong. I mean, I think that is, um, that is also something that I've learned throughout this, especially this year doing four 200s in a year is that, with even so I did Cocodona in 2021 I finished that and that gave me even more confidence so now I'd finished two 200s I was feeling pretty confident so this year I went into the idea of doing four kind of thinking you know I can probably do this so I kind of expected it but at the same time I do respect the distance and I respect these crazy difficult courses enough to know that nothing is really guaranteed um because even though no matter what you do to prepare, you aren't totally, you don't know what it's actually going to be like. At a, a race like Tahoe, um, you know, we had one kind of weather forecast heading into it, but the weather ended up being a lot different than we expected. I think it ended up being a lot nicer, cooler than we expected. We had a surprise snowstorm, which I think happens a lot at Tahoe. Um, at Bigfoot, we expected where we, in the past at Bigfoot, it has been really, really hot. We ended up having pretty decent weather. Um, at uh, at Moab, I ended up having a, some rain, which was kind of new for me to have during a 200. But anyway, you, you need to be prepared for all these things, but you never know what things are going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess I just feel like the 
the, the, the confidence that I got, especially this year, each successive finish gave me even more and more confidence. Um, but the, uh, but I think part of what I wanted to get to was that at Tahoe, I was feeling pretty confident going into Tahoe, uh, but it, and, I, and also, cause I think Tahoe is not considered to be the hardest course. I mean, all of the, all of these races are difficult. I don't want to um, downplay the difficulty of any of them. They're all extremely hard, but among the des the destination trail, triple crown races of Bigfoot, Moab and, and Tahoe, it's generally believed that Bigfoot's the hardest. And then the, the easier ones are Tahoe and Moab, depending on, on, you know, what you're good at. Tahoe is the shortest of, of them being only 200 and I go, I think it, for me, it ended up being just over 200 miles. Um, but Tahoe was the di most difficult for me to finish. And it is the one that I almost thought about DNFing. I almost quit that race. And that was just due to some respiratory issues that a, a lot of us runners were having. It was really cold in the mornings and at night. And there was a lot of dust and pollen in the air. And there's something about that combination of things led to significant mucus collection in my lungs and it really degraded my ability to get oxygen. And so whenever I was climbing, well, after mile 65, after I had had a good day and a half for all this to accumulate in me, once I started to try to climb uphill, I had, I just had no energy. So I would just like take a couple steps and then stop and wheeze and, and just like question myself, like what is happening? What is going on? How am I possibly gonna finish this race? And I managed to get myself to the mile 88 station. And at that point, there was just a lot of people sitting around struggling. A lot of people, a lot of them had already dropped from the race. And um, I talked to the medical guy and said, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm struggling with. And he gave me some suggestions. He told me to A, take a nap. He thought that would help me. Also get more calories in me because once my body starts thinking it doesn't have any energy, it would be more helpful if I actually had calories on board ready to be spent. So I need to eat more. Uh, and then uh, also just some positive thinking, I think was also suggested too. like, you know what, listen, you got to, you can't let yourself get down. And so I would, I left that aid station. I took a, a small trail nap. Uh, but then as soon as I tried to go uphill again, it was, I was again hitting this wall. I turned around and started to walk back towards the aid station because I was just about to give up. And some other runner went by and they're like, hey man, just, you know, I know it sucks, but just move forward, don't go back. And I kind of, I just needed that. So anyway, I managed to get from that mile 88 station out of there. Eventually I made it my way to the mile 100 aid station, which is where my crew was and where I was planning to sleep. And uh, anyway, I took, a, I took a two hour or three hour nap there. I can't remember, I slept. But because I laid down and slept, my lungs were able to um, clear themselves. So when I woke up from that nap, I was just a coughing mess, just all kinds of crap coming out. But I cleared my lungs, had something to eat, and then left that aid station feeling great until a little while, like maybe 80 or 20 or 30 miles later, I was kind of back to having this problem again. But in any case, there's a lot more to that race that sucked. Um, but the, uh, so I, I you never know when you're going to really have a, have a tough struggle, I guess is kind of, I guess is what I'm getting to, but.
so that so was a rough sounds, one. So it sounds like you know Cocodona this year went 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 pretty well for you. Is that fairly? This year, Cocodona went really well. I had learned from the previous two years uh, uh, that I needed to re- rethink my sleep strategy. So I think when I did Moab the first year, I had an idea of sleeping when I write. I think my my strategy was sleep when I was tired. I think that was my idea. Um, in hindsight, not the best strategy. I kind of continued with that strategy at Cocodona the first time, and I didn't actually really sleep until the third night, mile 180. I think I'd slept, I had a couple of smattering of naps, and so up until mile 180, I had slept a total of maybe 45 minutes or something. It wasn't, it wasn't very much, but I was a wreck at mile 180 when I hadn't really had a proper sleep. So that was an education for me. So when I went back to Cocodona the second time, so the beginning of this year, the, the, the four races this year, I had an idea that I was going to try to be more, much more proactive about my sleep. I was going to sleep earlier and I was going to sleep more often. So at mile 60 something, I laid down for, I think an hour at Cocodona, uh, had a rest and that made me feel great when I left. And then I slept again, I guess it was the next night night two, I slept for another hour, an hour and a half. And I found that having those sleeps, like I'm planning to sleep whether I'm tired or not, because I just, just, it will help me bank that for later. That proved to me to be totally a successful strategy at Cocodona. Uh, I ended up feeling great going into day three at mile 180. I was feeling a lot better than I did at Cocodona the first time. Uh, and it made the sec- that last part of the race much, much better. So then I followed the same strategy when I got to the next race in the series this year, which was, I guess, Tahoe in June. Tahoe, yeah, Tahoe. I, um, I wasn't really ready to sleep at mile 50. The way that Tahoe was set up this year for us, it was an out and back uh, because norm, the normal loop course was damaged in the previous year for a, from a fire. So we had an out and back and we saw a crew at mile 30, mile 50, and then not again until 100. And then again at 150 and then 180, 190, 200 and then the finish or something. But there was there was like this 50 mile part with no crew and also this the sleep station, there were no sleep stations in between. So at, at Tahoe, I didn't end up sleeping until mile 100. Uh, but then I slept again at mile 150 and well, maybe that was all I ended up sleeping at Tahoe. But uh, again, just like make sure I sleep whether whether I'm tired or not. Like you just I need to. It's a part of the thing. I think in the same way that eating is a part of these things in the in the case of the long distances, I think it's important to think about sleeping being just as much as the thing you do, because um, I think if if you. I think in a race you eat whether you want to or not, because I think you understand your body needs fuel. So you may not feel hungry, but you're going to still fuel because that's just what your body needs. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to think about sleep in that same way. It can be difficult to fall asleep if you're too jazzed or just have too much energy. But I think even lying down for 30 minutes and just letting everything settle uh, is at least that's better than not doing anything, not resting at all, because your body just needs to take a break and needs to um, 
And, and sometimes in my case, even like the lungs need a break too. They need to get something out. And that the best way to do that is to lie down. Yeah, kind of, and, you know, kind of reset. So, yeah. so you alluded that at Tahoe, that the respiratory issues weren't the real, the, what wasn't one of your big, I mean, didn't end up being your biggest challenge. What was your biggest challenge there? Well, no, I think the respiratory issues were the biggest challenge at Tahoe. Okay. It was something that I hadn't expected necessarily. Um, but certainly the difficulty that I had trying to go uphill with the lungs in the state they were, um, that it was that respiratory issues at Tahoe that was the hardest thing. And I, I really worried it was going to, to end my race. It, but, but, but you made it through Tahoe and then it looks like, it looks like going it, and it looks like you went into Bigfoot and it just based off of your race results at Bigfoot, Bigfoot, if I'm looking at it correctly, was your, one of your stronger performances from just like a you, you from a placement standpoint and stuff so i guess i'm taking bigfoot you rolled into it and 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 that one went went fairly fairly smooth for you it did uh yeah in fact i felt like each race i got stronger so cocodona went pretty well for me but then i tahoe I mean, respiratory issues aside, Tahoe also went pretty well for me. I mean, I finished Tahoe in less than 90 hours. Um, I had a pretty good performance considering the fact that I had spent so much time suffering and lying down and, and coughing and whatever. But I got to the third race, Bigfoot, and you're right, I had perhaps the best race of them all. Uh, it just went really well. I was I slept well in my naps. That whole strategy was was great. Um, I think I got enough calories at the aid station so that I would was moving well. I also paired up with another runner named Scott Jenkins. He's he lives in London, and Scott and I had originally met at Moab in 2019. So that's where we became friends from the trail, um, and we had seen each other at the start line at Bigfoot, and we had said, "Hey, we should try to run together," uh, but then. In the course of us just running our own race, I didn't end up really seeing Scott again until like mile 68 or something like that. But once I caught up to him, we ended up spending a lot of the race together. And so I think that that also helped motivate me to have a good run because I was running with him a lot. And I was he was really good at getting out of aid stations more quickly where I'm um, I'm really good at lounging around at aid stations and taking my time. Uh, but Scott really motivated me to get out faster. And yeah, I ended up finishing like 26th place or something like that. I think yeah, it was my yeah. highest placement and a really good finishing time, uh, 82 hours or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, and yeah, it, it was amazing how good I felt even in the last 11 miles, which were mostly, there was a road section at the end of the run. And we were running that at like, 12 minute pace 11 minute pace a lot wow. of it and it just felt great i don't know it was it is truly amazing how well how much each race each run felt better uh tahoe i also had a pretty strong run at however uh, i'm sorry uh, moab the last one moab i had a pretty good run but moab was hot during the day and so i I intentionally dialed it down during the day, took things slower. So I ended up finishing slower than I had originally wanted to, but that was just because it was so hot. I, I didn't want to go too hard and then end up, you know, blowing up because of the heat. Uh, but not only did, so in each race, I felt stronger. 
and then I recovered from each race faster. So my recovery after Tahoe was faster than my recovery after Cocodona and my recovery after Bigfoot was even faster. Uh, my body just started to get into a mode of, you know, wanting to wanting to get out running again and feeling better. My blisters and everything just seemed to re- go way more quickly. Everything felt better faster. Um, so it's a remarkable thing to, to sort of witness my body doing over the over the year. That's crazy. And it, 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 that how, how, how listening to you, how well you were recovering from race to race. And I guess, and I have to ask because I would be remiss not to ask how much pressure did you feel going in to Moab after finishing the two of the three of the triple crown, knowing you were one away, but then at the same time, knowing what lied ahead because of just the, 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 you know, 200 miles is just a, a crazy distance, but like, did you feel like any extra bit of pressure going into that to kind of seal off the triple crown? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I think the triple crown was hanging over my head the whole time of the destination trail races, even at Tahoe, the first race in June, um, you know, that was the run that I was most likely to have, have quit. And, and so it, that would have been, I was partly motivated to continue on at Tahoe because I had the triple crown to go that I was also there. So, cause if I, if I DNF'd at Tahoe, that also would have meant I DNF'd the triple crown. Oh yeah. And, and that would have been just like, Oh no, that's not, that's not what I wanted. So having the, that additional carrot of the, of this overarching goal, um, helped motivate me at Tahoe at, at Moab. I did feel that because at Moab, it's like, okay, well, nothing's guaranteed. This, this is, I'm, I'm embarking on a really difficult journey of 240 miles in the desert. Um, I'm feeling good. Everything is pointing towards success. I've had a great year, but you know, because nothing is, nothing is for sure. I don't know, but yeah, there was definitely a thing of wanting to, protect the the finish of the of the series and uh and to do well and also there had been um some results had been posted after after tahoe happened there there wasn't any um i didn't know who was in the triple crown or like how the the standings of the triple crown was but after the second race after bigfoot they did post the standings of the people. I think there was like 20 people remaining in the triple crown and I was seventh in the, in the standings. <laughs> and I'm not normally very competitive, but that particular knowledge did stick with me. I started to think, Oh boy, can I maintain my position? Like I felt really good. Like seven out of 20 people is pretty good, especially what we're doing trying to, and that, that was a series of three, two hundreds. Of course, I also had the had started the thing off with another 200. Anyway, so I did feel I did feel some pressure to to not only finish it, but to try to maintain my position. So um, there was a section leaving mile 200 at Moab. I left the Geyser Pass aid station, which took us to the Porcupine Rim aid station. And Porcupine Rim was the last aid station before the finish. So I left 
I left Geyser Pass, mile 200, and as I left, I saw two other runners behind me leave the aid station. They're probably about a quarter mile behind me, so on this long, straight stretch, I happened to see that they're way back there. And I thought, oh, darn it. It was, it was Jimmy and David, Jimmy Ortega and David Aguayo had left. And Jimmy was a triple crowner who was kind of close to me in the, in the standings. And so I, I did have enough of a competitive edge in me to be like, you know what, I got to keep, I got to stay ahead of these guys. I got to stay ahead of Jimmy if I can. And so anyway, I ran pretty hard that segment and just to keep ahead of those guys. But then about maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 miles later, they, they, they caught up and they got ahead of me. Uh, but somehow they ended up having a slowdown on the dirt road section before that last aid station. And I caught up to them and I ended up getting to the last aid station ahead of them. Uh, but then they, in the last segment, they were just, they blew by me. They they finished about 20 or 30 minutes ahead of me in the whole race. But um, it, that, that it was just kind of having that knowledge of that placement, you know, definitely gave me a little bit of a, a looking out for competitors in a way that I don't normally do. But also we have that we have so much camaraderie that by by Moab, a lot of us triple crown runners have now met each other. We all know each other and we've spent a lot of time on the trail together. So uh, that, that was another thing that was really special. I mentioned earlier about how much I love 200s because of the camaraderie. And it's, it's even amplified even more when you end up at this, you know, multiple races with these people in that same condition. So. I have some some of my closest friends I consider right now are the people who I spend time with on the trail in these races. That's awesome. So, so a few more questions. Um, I, I could I could ask you a bazillion, but it'd be the longest interview in creation if I if I <laughs> wanted to ask everything I wanted to ask. Uh, it's like a Peter Mortimer was the same way. I interviewed Peter, you know, and uh, Peter's ran gosh just about every hard damn race in the world um it seems like but anyway um so how much crew are you taking to something like do you feel like a crew for a 200 mile race is going to be bigger than a crew that you would need for 100 miles or do you feel like it's about the same i think the size of the crew is the same uh the demands on the crew is a lot bigger um you know you did a crew somebody crewing you for a 100 miler you're asking them to take a day and a half or two days out of their life uh, to crew a, a 200 miler, you know, where they're actively crewing you for four or five days, plus the time to get to the place and back, you know, so you're really asking somebody for a week out of their life. Um, I, I'm a big fan of having a crew. And so I've had a crew at every 200 and I had, um, the same crew at three of the four races this year. Uh, my partner Leah has been at every race. And then her sister was at three of the races. And then at Tahoe, my daughter joined Leah as our crew. So I had a crew of two people at all four races. And then um, I did not have pacers at any of them, except for at Cocodona, there was a short section uh, that Leah joined me for. So. Um, that was nice just for she and I to have just, you know, sort of share the memory and, and enjoy the experience together. Um, I met a lot of runners who don't have crew. And so that just requires a lot more focus on drop bags and thinking about the logistics. And so 
I think that certainly works and people in some people enjoy that. If, if I have the opportunity to have crew, I'm definitely going to take it because I just, you know, it's an emotional boost to know that at, at an upcoming aid station, you're going to see your crew. That helps me a lot to know that they're going to be there. Um, for me, I also use our crew vehicle as a sleeping spot. So um, except for at Tahoe, there was a, an aid station where the crew had to park too far away from the aid station. And so at that aid station, I ended up sleeping in the tent. But most times when I sleep at, a, at an aid station, I'll be sleeping in our crew vehicle. And that so that's also an advantage that I, I enjoy. Um, but it's a lot of work to be the crew. Uh, and in case of like Bigfoot, it's the hard. Bigfoot is probably the hardest of all of them for the crew. They'll end up driving several hundred miles um, just to get between the aid stations. And some of the aid stations are hours and hours from the previous aid station, and you're in the wilderness with no cell service. Um, and it's it's a lot. That that's a that's a particular hardship on crew for sure. Um, but uh, I'm really grateful to the crew. They really you know motivate me and and help me get these done. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just, you know, it, it's it's funny because, you know, you would think that there would, you, you know, that there would be a need for, you know, uh, you know, to have to have a crew. But, you know, I guess if you planned it right, you have your 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 race planned out, your drop bags planned out, um, you know, you you could easily do it. It's really no different than like a. Um, kind of like what a through hiker does to some extent, right? Yeah. They, they have their supplies and then they make it to from point A to point B, then they resupply and then they go to point C and then to D and then so forth and so on. And you're just kind of going through your journey and, and doing what you need to do to, to get to the next spot. And I guess the other question I was going to ask you before I forget it was, um, do you usually do like a max cushion shoe when you're covering that kind of distance? You do multiple shoe changes. You know, what does that look like? I am, I'm a pretty, I'm pretty big on cushion for my shoes, uh, partly because of the ankle injury that I suffered in 2016. Uh, I'm not necessarily going after the most maximum of cushions. I mean, I think a lot of people are running in Hoka. Um, Hoka shoes have really high cushion. Uh, however, the Hoka toe box is too narrow for my preference. So I run in shoes made by Topo Athletic. And um, Topo has a wide toe box, which gives my toes some good space, but they also have a little bit of a drop. So Topo is similar to like Ultra, Ultra with an A. Ultra shoes are really popular among 200 mile distance runners also, but they are zero drop shoes. And my body has shown me in the past that it does not like zero drop. So I run in Topo because not only do they have the wide toe box, but they have like a five millimeter drop. Uh, but the Ultra Venture shoes made by Topo are their more cushioned trail shoe. So I run in Ultra Venture and also Ultra Venture Pro. Those are the two models that I've run in. And I will generally also change shoes during the run. I will probably bring two or three probably three pairs of shoes with me to the race um and then in the case of Cocodona, i think they were all were they all ultra venture pros no i think there was an ultra venture pro two pairs of ultra venture pros and an ultra venture so they're slightly different shoes just trying to change up the feeling a little bit 
And then at Bigfoot and Moab, I also brought a pair of running sh- uh, trail um, running shoes. Silly me. I brought a pair of road running shoes. So uh, one, a couple different segments, it was appropriate to run in road shoes. And that was great because it, it just totally changed the way that my feet felt. And then uh, really, it was really energizing. So I find having different pairs of shoes is important just for, you know, maintaining your feet because along the way in 150 miles, you know, I might run the hundred, the first 150 miles in one pair of shoes and then switch in that 150 miles, you know, the shoes could have all kinds of issues or they could start to fall apart, you know? So it's almost like I want to change shoes just for the knowledge that I'm going to have some decent footwear to maintain the entire distance. Uh, but also if I can change into shoes that are a little bit different in their construction, I think that just gives the feet a different feeling and wakes them up and and just feels good to have a little bit of a change. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, so what's, so I I guess what's ahead for you at Cocodona next year? Um, what, what else are you planning around, around that? So I'm going to do Cocodona. This will be my third time running that race. Um, and I'm excited. My, some of my friends like to give me a hard time about it because I used to always brag about how I never repeat races. Uh, but yeah, I've totally fallen in love with Cocodona. So I'm going to return there in May. Um, I have the Bandera 100K in January. Uh, so that's good. I'm running that as my Western States qualifier. So between now and January, I'm going to take a little bit of time to relax for the next month ish. And then what, what with light running and then, um, start to train for Bandera after Bandera, I'll probably do another 50 K or hundred K along the way, just as a training run, uh, leading into Cocodona, uh, after Cocodona, uh, the next thing is I'm going to have a 200 miler in August, which is a brand new 200 miler being produced by go beyond racing. It's in Oregon. It's called the Oregon 200. So, um, they have they don't have signups available for that yet because they're still doing all their permitting and various things. But my my excitement is very high to run that. This will be the second time that I've run an inaugural race. The first time I ran an inaugural was the inaugural Cocodona, mm-hmm. and um, that was also really fun. It was fun to be a part of the first year of something. Um, that's the the race is going to have problems, and so it's kind of fun to be a part of it and see what problems they have and and just be there to help them sort of beta test the race. Uh, so I'm going to do two 200s next year, and then I'm going to run, uh, I'm going to run a, I'm, I'm, I'm organizing a hundred mile run with some friends just for fun. Uh, so I'm going to do my own course that I'm developing. And then, um, yeah, besides that, I think some hundred Ks, 50 Ks just for fun to fill things out. It's not going to be quite as big a year as this one. I don't, I don't think I want to do four 200s in a single year at least not anytime soon. It's, it's a big commitment. It's a huge time commitment. It's extremely expensive. So (laughs) yeah, I'm going to hold off on that for a while. It's huge. And I think you've earned, earned some time off. And, um, and, and, and I guess, you know, for those that don't know, he's, you're, you're, you're on the West coast, right? That's right. Yeah. You should, you should, uh, you should come out here on the East, uh, here cause I'm in Tennessee and, uh, there's a, there's a race that last puts on, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the last annual of all state. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. yeah. You want to talk about a race that kicks your butt that race right there. 
running uh, running across the roads of Tennessee, you know, over 300 miles, man, uh, I've, I've had the uh, opportunity to, uh, I got to interview the record, the guy who broke the record, Bob Hearn, and uh, man, just listening to his story, uh, you know, it was funny because you talked about looking for the euphoria, right, of running, right? And he talks, he, he talks about in my interview about kind of hitting this transcendent type, you know, uh, level okay. of running yeah. during that race, you know, that. but, but that, that one, you want to talk about a journey, that's a journey race. And then of course, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, there's, there's the Barkley fall classic, which is the baby Barkley, uh, you know, since the big one's so big to get in, but there's, there's, there's some tough stuff out here on the, on the East coast. Uh, you know, we don't have those big, big old mountains like you guys have out West though. So <laughs> those long road races like Vol state, they really do, um, in a weird way appeal to me. They sound awful and terrible, but at the same time, I'm really curious about it. A guy who I met at Cocodona the first year, um, ran, ran Vol state this year. And seeing his posts and everything, I just started to think, oh man, I, I can feel the draw towards that. Um, yeah, maybe that, that that may be something that I want to look at. Cause I, I do, one of the things that's so fun about these kinds of races, and I think that the, the, these road races that you're talking about are in this vein is just traveling across, you know, s some space and getting intimate with the land and also seeing little towns along the way and and getting to even witness people as you're running past them i i am i'm drawn to that i find that um i really enjoy running because it puts me into a place where i get in contact with nature uh in a way that i feel is really special where uh i remember you know before i became a runner i would sometimes go on a, on a road trip or something and like we, we drove to the grand canyon and you know we parked we stood on the edge we looked at it we're like okay yeah cool i didn't feel any connection to it because i didn't actually get into it but now these days you know i i go off and i'd run an adventure and i'm there touching the touching the earth with my shoed feet granted but still i'm there in the environment and i feel like nature and i are able to commune and and have a connection that is special and so I understand the places that I run in a way that feels really primal and spiritual. Um, and, and I like that connection. I like feeling an understanding with a place. And, you know, Cocodona is great because you end up going from town to town in that way where you start to feel a journey across the landscape. And I get to have that feeling of being in touch with the, with the place and it, it's really become a real meaningful thing for me as I journey all these different places is, you know, seeing what what nature has for me to explore and enjoy and then become a part of it and have it become a part of me. Oh, that's 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 I, I, I totally can understand that like being out there in nature. It's just, you know, like I'm fortunate because, you know, we're close to the Smoky Mountains and getting to be up there and, and you know, seeing, you know, there's certain places up there that, you know, that are just magical, like Mount yeah, Lacant yeah. and stuff like that. But like, you know, you know, just going up to going back to Vol State is I think the neat thing about that race is, you know, they have the screwed and the unscrewed version. And with the screwed version, even though you don't have a crew, it's the one race that 
I guess it's okay to not have a crew because you can stop and get a hotel along the way, or, you know, there's, there's convenience stores, there's Walmarts, there's drug stores, there's whatever else you might need. But, you know, but then in the same respect, I know a lot of people like having that crew, like having that familiar person there, don't want to have to worry about getting a hotel, even though I hear a lot of people do end up getting hotels. But anyway, uh, it, it's 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 a neat experience. I always, anytime I talk to West Coast people, I'm like, you got to come out to the East Coast. What's funny is Jeff Browning's like, I'm out here all the time. I know about your East Coast running, you know, because he runs Blood Rock and, you know, he's all over the place. And, uh, you know, Peter, Peter Mortimer actually ran Big Barkley. Uh, he was like, yeah, I'm the famous guy that forgot their bib and had to turn around and go back. And I'm like, <laughs> he's like, man, I'm trying to get Laz to let me back in. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but, but anyway, I, you know, man, I really appreciate it. Um, and it's, it's been a great time talking to you today and uh, hearing about this, you know, hearing, hearing what it's like to run four, 200 milers in a year and listening about the preparation and, and, the mindset and everything is, it's, it's been truly, it's been truly enjoyable. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, that's it for this week's episode. Um, as always, there'll be a video and audio version. And uh, until the next time, we'll see you on the trip.